Only you cared. Yeah, exactly. Only we cared. Uh, that's that's actually that would be the title for the book. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Holy Fuck, It's a Music Podcast. Our guest today is Mark Kleiner. Uh, the Mark Kleiner Power Trio exploded onto BC's music scene with 2002's album Love Tonight. Mark has performed on and off again over the past few decades, as well as ministering to congregations in Saskatoon as an Anglican pastor. So uh, thanks, Mark, for doing this, as uh, we were saying. And uh, so just, you know, to set the scene, you know, you were born here in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that hyperbolic introduction. <laughs> you like that, eh? <laughs> yes, yes, very, very kind, exceedingly kind. Um, no, I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, okay. My, I, I'm kind of what they call an accidental American. My dad was down there uh, finishing a doctorate and working as a, as a book editor. And so I had Canadian parents, I have Canadian parents, but I just sort of ended up accidentally born in the city of brotherly love, which was quite a, quite the cachet, you know, especially when Rocky came out in the 70s. But it's been <laughs> a complete pain in the ass because you have to, or in person, my position basically to renounce citizenship is a, uh, like, because the IRS was expecting me to be filing taxes for years and blah, blah. I've never made any money as a minister or as a musician, yeah. uh, you know. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, man, um, I'm right there with you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I uh, we came up here in 75, and uh, I grew up in Saskatoon. And then I pretty much my story in terms of a lot of music, like I really felt a real drive to, to go into music and had some sort of inarticulate vision of making it. Um, and I went to Vancouver in those days, this being 90. So this is just pre Seattle. Um, it was kind of like you went to Toronto or you went to Vancouver. Yeah. Before we get there, I was going to say, so what was like, what was music like in the Kleiner household? Did your mom and dad play or sing or, you know, my parents, my dad used to play a song called gypsy dance on the piano, which is probably some sort of a racial slur now, I don't know, but it was just, it was, just a, it was an instrumental song. It was kind of like dad, you know, play gypsy dance. We just like listen to him do that, but it wasn't a real big, uh, it's not that they were anti-music. Although I do remember we got in as kids into kiss, like pretty much was what, what you're supposed to do when you're seven, eight years old in the seventies. And I remember, yeah. um, we were going to play at a church function. Now my dad was, a uh, a church pastor before I was born and then became a, a theological professor. My mom went into the ministry late 70s. So this was prior to that, but um, we were going to be singing a cover of Kiss's Dr. Love at like a basement church function. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they were so horrified when they heard us rehearsing, or my mom was. She, she said, you, you, the word came down, you can't sing that in the church. So the conceit was, John Paul and I had to write an original song, you know, because let's set us off on songwriting. Thanks, mom. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's, that story is so, true. So, which yeah. Is, uh, so, so that kind of, was that a, was that a late in the day kind of thing? Then, sorry, Randy. Like, so, oh yeah, we're gonna play this song. Oh, wonderful boys, you know, you're gonna do this thing, and then and suddenly someone actually listened to it, and then it was like, whoa, 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 whoa no, yeah. no, 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 yeah, well, exactly. I think, so. and I, I do the other part of the story is I do remember asking my mom because I was probably seven, seven years old, and yeah. Uh, I asked her what, what, why it was bad in church. Is it because God is the doctor of love? I asked her that question. So that's still kind of been yeah. an open question, you know, so that uh, who is the doctor of love? Well, obviously, <laughs> in the song, it's answered for us. It's Gene Simmons, right? So, so when did you actually start playing then, Mark? Um, and what were, you, were you playing keyboard first or guitar? Yeah, or I got piano lessons until eight years old. And I still remember that was around the time Rainbow Connection when the Muppet movie came out. And I still remember having that uh, back when we buy sheet music and, and like, I mean, this was precious stuff and having the, the, the book from the Muppet movie and being able to play the intro kind of banjo lick on the piano and having the kids yeah. come around that sort of that sense of, you know, music bringing people together and feeling, you know, I guess it, it, it was a way that I felt special you know, in terms of something I could bring. Now, I wasn't terribly proficient at classical piano reading off of, like I did was yeah. did start to get conservatory lessons, never really excelled at that, but um, I uh, I was good enough to get the kids together until Nancy Needham got the sheet music the next week and then totally kicked my ass and she could play the whole song. So I remember just that, that sort of brief exhilaration and then there's just the humiliation. So that was kind of a theme that was, uh, became perennial. That's <laughs> a year, yeah. you know. So a mighty long way down rock and roll, as Ian Hunter put it. <laughs> so was that? I like asking this question. I like asking musicians this question because I mean, I remember distinctly when music really bit me. And so, do you remember that kind of point where you're either playing something, you think, "Well, wait a minute, I don't, I can't play those notes on the page necessarily, but this feels good. Like I know that this is what I want to do. This is something that makes me feel good." Do you remember that kind of moment? I, yeah, I do remember, and I wish I knew who the artist was, but I, it was actually good to go back to Philadelphia before. So I was like younger than five. I was, I was three or four years old, and I had a forty-five of, of Big Rock Candy Mountain. That oh yeah. Song. And it was something about, I don't know who the performer was, and I would like to know, because I just listened to it obsessively over and over. And it was just like, I think that what you're speaking to is having that sense of when a song connects. And, and that was, yeah. that's kind of stuff. When I, when I relate to a song, I remember, you know, even in the 90s in the band house, and we lived with some other musicians. And I remember one of my, my housemates saying to me, like, why do you listen to the same fucking three songs over and over? Which is, you know, I, I probably wasn't, I was never a Miles Davis always trying to get to the next Vista, you know, pushing it on. Yeah. I do have an admiration for those kind of musicians. But for me, it would be like, you know, you find something that just really relates and, and, and uh, just that sense that, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm being reached. And it, and it goes beyond, beyond words. It's the power of music, right? And Who were the early influences, do you think, as an actual musician? Do you remember any sort of people thinking, that's my guy, that's the guy I want to play like? I think from a young age, I was listening to songs, you know. And now I realize yeah. that a lot of what makes a good song are um, not only performances and parts and all those things that go into it, um, but I would have had less of a sense of identifying with the um, the particular player, per se, and more of that sense, I guess, I was trying to go for. I just wanted to get that whole package, you know, if it, as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know, and, and was really felt drawn to that. And I should mention, too, in terms of mentorship, 
um, the my my conservatory piano teacher recognized that it really you know I, I had several years with her. Mrs. Raisler was her name, but she recognized that I really needed something else, and not only just something else, I needed Sam Loneheim, who was the piano man. Sam, the piano man, who also taught a guy named Terry Hawkness, who went on to uh, you know in Saskatoon here and uh, has become. We both had the same instructor, so he was a guy who would play back when there were these saloons that would have a pianist. He would play for like right. four or five hours, right? I mean, he would just yeah. go in there. He'd do like an eight-hour, not quite an eight-hour shift, but damn close, playing songs. And yeah. Uh, yeah. and he taught me like four or five songs a week. With like, he taught me the bass lines. He taught me chords, and and basically, I had I have a good ear for picking up melodies and stuff. So he'd have these kind of uh, sheet music that were all handwritten, and um, I just got to keep that flow going. And to learn how to kind of uh, again less about the, the precision on the instrument and more about being able to uh, put a song across. So was that then? So what you're talking about there? It's not just that musicianship. It's almost like you recognized fairly early on that you wanted to tell stories or you wanted to say something. You you, you felt felt you had a voice or where did that come from? Where did, like the creativity and that kind of side of it? When did that kick in? I, I had my my brother and I. We had a lot of teddy bears, and we used to make our teddy bears into bands. And they were like original bands, but they were they were highly derivative, right? So instead of kiss, instead of kiss, you had kissy, right, with a Y. But you know they have they would have quote unquote original songs, and and we would like you know we'd be playing ping pong and we'd be talking about the kissy cat, and so this whole mental movie would happen of the kissy career that was obviously based on kiss but it would be a, a whole <laughs> stew of a bunch of other bands so when i think back to it there were all these like really again highly derivative teddy bear kind of bands that would make multiple records and you know we cut out little mini teddy bear size albums that would have eight or ten or eleven original songs on them you know so you'd be coming up with songs yeah. and just generating a lot of ideas but which again becomes part of that conversation of, of, of how much of this is to go forth you know like like what what makes stuff interesting to the year is is that combination of of familiarity and then being you know when you listen to yesterday where it just drops a beat right goes to seven four yeah. or whatever it's just you know that that kind of sweet spot you know so probably i've aired more in my own music on the side of familiarity which does well around a campfire i don't know if it always makes for the most captivating back catalog to look at but you know yeah. It is. It is kind of navigating those different poles, right? Yeah. yeah. But there, there's something. I mean, there's something to be said for that, though. I mean, Lennon and McCartney, or certainly McCartney, tends to get, I think, unfairly criticised sometimes because he writes pop melodies. Well, people like those. You know, so you, you want something you can hum. You want something you can take away and you can sing at home on your own. So I always find that sort of broad appeal where people turn their nose up at broad appeal. I find that a bit. It's a bit disingenuous. I think it's a bit silly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, Tommy McCartney is like the best melody writer of. Like what the last however many yeah, decades, I, you know. Obviously, John Lennon had the the benefit of being uh, martyred. <laughs> I mean, obviously yeah. not not from a you know a, a life experience, but from a, from a cultural. <laughs> I mean, you know, it sucks yeah. to be killed in cold blood. I'm not making light of any of that. From a cultural perspective, and McCartney's talked about that since he knew from that moment then, or that's at least how he tells the story now that you know. All that stuff about Paul, who was also very interested and in probably a lot more so than even Lennon in a lot of art, you know, highly innovative and artistic kind of like pushing the envelope kind of areas. That yeah. was all kind of forgotten. So so in, in terms of how we remember them, Lennon was the guy who was pushing the envelope and McCartney was kind of the, 
you know, the, the sell-out, if you will. And, and together they managed yeah. to make that, or the sweet and, and Lennon's the sour. But it's obviously, it's a, there's a lot more to it than that. And, and McCartney had a hell of a work ethic. I mean, you know, I've just started mm-hmm. to re- oh. revisit McCartney's 75, 76, right? So he he does it once with the Beatles. He does it again, right? Like he, he actually takes this yep. band together and that, if you watch Wings Over America, or that's the album. But I mean, the movie of that with Jimmy McCulloch and all those guys. It take. I mean, there's there's not many guys who've done that, right? Like you say, the Beatles. You're not going to top that. But Wings were. That was a pretty seriously talented group of musicians, and it wasn't just McCartney. They had some real killer players in that in that band, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and, and really good. And albums that we thought sucked at the time, you kind of go back and go, <laughs> well, back to the egg, you know, like oh, like you know, I just remember that as being just dreck. You can listen to it now, and he's got you know, in that rockestra theme, he's got uh, Gilmore, uh, Bonham, Town. Yeah, yeah, that's not a bad. It's group. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's just crazy. Oh, and Paul McCartney. Yeah, and, and McCartney. Yeah. yeah. And, and, Linda, and Linda, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you remember, what were your first experiences then with playing with other people? As we're talking about sort of bands and, and that kind of interaction, where, where did that start? Well, that would have started in the church basement and actually my, uh, you know, our friend of the family, really more a friend of my brother, Bruce Essenberg, who had like a little drum set and we were putting on our own derivative version of the, of the kiss characters so writing an original set and having the old women from church come to our concert you know or whatever right. so i remember sitting on the little chairs in bruce's basement and us coming out we were called out of sight and then we were called stars which was just already a band so speaking of them I mean, that's where you take <laughs> derivation too far and just lift completely <laughs> but you know we're, we're we're not even double digits in age right so I just remember I was kind of Davy Jones type. I would I would shake some kind of a tambourine and and then hiding behind those big seventies kind of throw pillows at the start of the show. And we had plastic spiders that we threw at the audience. Or, oh yeah, uh, to start <laughs> nice. and then uh, they threw them back. So I remember that. Moment. <laughs> and I don't remember a lot about the music. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about Sister Lovers, which. Sister Lovers, which, by the way, I think is a great band name. Uh, was that was that one of the, was that when you first band when you moved out to Vancouver? Was that one of the first ones or? Yeah, so we've been playing like like I moved out to Vancouver with two friends of mine from here, Tim Murphy and Aaron Gilgan, and we played uh, in high school together. And um, we were in a band called Green Eggs and Ham with Kevin Mambo, who went on to he was our singer, and then he was on the Guiding Light. He won a Daytime Emmy. And, Blah, blah, blah. Oh, no way. and uh cool. yeah so but but we were we were a high school band and then after high school we changed our name to the ned power trip and we were <laughs> had ned <laughs> powers the local the local that's talk. really good <laughs> yeah so um but but we were told not we were kind of using ned, ned's image and blacking out his eyes and you know whatever in the posters <laughs> it's a long story but basically we were threatened with legal action and so we had to change our name. So we, we moved out to Vancouver and we were briefly known as the squeaky Froms, one of Vanson's, you know, I mean, I, you know, again, like we're, we're try, what are we trying to conjure up here? But anyway, we went yeah. from hours to squeaky Froms. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then we, yeah, we, we, we call ourselves sister. Basically we love that record. I mean, that was the big star third, album and and it was just like this is a great name like what's sister lovers you know and uh 
we'd always get billed as the sister lovers. So that would be it. Not the sister lovers. But right <laughs> I mean, we're, yeah. Yeah. Uh, only you cared. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Only we cared. Uh, that's, that's actually, <laughs> that would be the title for the book. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's, it's amazing that, I mean, really a lot of this stuff, like what, what I find is really so interesting is it, it is fun to talk about now, you know what I mean? And, and it is like, we're all kind of trying to work, work through stuff. Right. And uh, one of the beautiful things about making music um, for, for me in my life, it's been a, a way to connect with other people and um, you know, friendship and, and that, and, you know, for me to have, um, just as far as a human being, I mean, don't always, I don't always take the time to pick up the phone and call, but, but music was a way to stay connected and, 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 and to get connected. You know, it's like you talk about those kinks albums or you talk about whatever. And then through that process, it's kind of like going on a fishing trip. Well, I never fished. I, I'm sure as fuck I'm not going to become a hunter. It was never for me. I would, I had a buddy yeah. bigger who took me in and said, I'm going to teach you how to use power tools. Do you want to do it? Uh, yeah, I'll do it. Then I realized, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, I, I, I'm kind of a space case, you know? And if you just start daydreaming while you're doing power tools, yeah. you're fucked, right? <laughs> anyway, what I'm saying with that story is, like, there's very clear, you know, some things, I mean, are, are opportunities to grow and other things are definitely, you know, not going to happen. Well, well music was, a, was kind of like my fishing or my hunting it's a way of connecting with others and so though though we were we we had you know sister we made a great album that never came out uh, i think it did digitally years later but and we made some interesting other stuff too and we were definitely i think artistically we had a couple of main writers in the band and we really pushed ourselves and we did some some interesting stuff and we had like really really no like i mean sort of success or whatever you know, we certainly never, I, I don't think came, we came close towards the end. How come that your album that you guys recorded was never released? What was, how come you guys didn't even do self-release it? Or? We sent a demo to Mint Records and they loved it and they wanted to put it out as an EP. Well, no, it's not done. And so we started to, um, you know, I don't think we were we were ready to, to share our music or I wasn't with the world. Mm, you know? yeah. And Mint gave us that, that not that opportunity they gave us that possibility and so then we started to um kind of push back against that to the point that we just pissed them off and they basically just said we're we're not dealing with these guys are too even by 1990s uh, musician <laughs> standards these guys are <laughs> complete nightmare and that kind of summed it up so so when the mint possibility um didn't you know really uh, when we basically screwed that, um, I, I didn't last too much longer in the band, and uh, they carried on for for a bit. I, I quit, and I got back together with Tim and Aaron, who I moved out to Vancouver with originally. And then we got a Stephen Ham joined the group, and he'd been in a bunch of other groups that were also notoriously um, erratic, like the uh, group called Slow. Have not been the same. Kind of a, there's a there's a book on Canadian rock made up. It's a great. So anyway, they kind of imploded at Expo 86 where they were, they brought in the RCMP and I mean, they took their clothes off and they, you know, the grandmother, <laughs> their grandmothers were in the audience. You know, it's just, it's just a horrible story. <laughs> yeah. 
So what, what? I'm curious, what was your reticence then about putting your songs out in the world? Because that's, you know, when as a songwriter, you know, as you get older, probably you want people to hear your songs. So when you were younger, what was the hesitation there about um, saying that we're not ready to sing these for people? Well, it's kind of like, um, it's what I, I can look at now, you know what I mean? So, so it's, 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 I don't know how entirely fair I can be to, to what it was then, but it's, it's, and I think the, 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 the thing, the, the, um, analytical framework that helped me kind of understand this a bit was a guy who was part of the Freudian school auto rank who was um, wrote a book called art and artist. And he talks about the struggle with the creative struggle. You know, it's like the music, you know, when it belongs, when it's just with me, so-called, I mean, there never is such a thing, but there is yeah. that sense that it's just so important for me to have a sense of identity a sense of, you know, I was describing playing Rainbow Connection as an eight-year-old, you know, that sense that this is something special that I can bring that people like. And yet there is that tension between being, you know, like, I guess, um, if, if you're living for the applause, if you're living for the gallery, um, you know, that's, you're, you're chasing um, something that's, you know, you're, it's, it's insatiable, unattainable. right? It's an insatiable desire. Yeah. Um, now, the theological frame of this is um, Augustine's line that our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Now, that sounds very, kind of, can sound very, you know, trite or can sound very like, oh, well, I found all the answers in religion kind of thing. When I speak of God or, you know, what, what seeking that, that kind of rest, that peace, I don't really distinguish between that and, and what really I think you know, music is, is all about in terms of the spirit and what it does, right? Um, but there is, that, there is that tension between the, um, and it really comes down to being, being part of others and apart from others, you know, that tension between being an individual and being part of a community. You know, yeah. I, when I think of my own father, I think a lot about uh, his, his his absence, you know, growing up. And, um, you know, into that void came the monkeys and, you know, that desire. It's interesting that the, the archetypal myths of, like, America are um, the Wizard of Oz, right? I mean, yeah. I went to the West mm -hmm. Coast, right? You, you leave Kansas, you leave Saskatchewan, you go, you find this dream. Well, if you actually do find the wizard, you find out the wizard's a frog. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Now that yeah, doesn't yeah. mean that, that the journey is irrelevant. I mean, it's, you know, the journey is so important, right? But at the same yeah. time, yeah. we we re we recognize that the journey, the, the goal, the supposed goal of the journey, I should say, is is a is a fraud. There's a corollary there, with, though. With you know, you, you see, I always think about that, and well, I think we're talking there a little bit there about is about lived experience, right? And sort of how that feeds into a person's need to belong, to feel part of something, to have self fulfillment, all those kinds of things. And I always look at young people at concerts who watch their concert like this. They're not there. They're not there. They're not sitting enjoying a show. They're they're just worried about videoing it so they can upload it later and there's a weird sort of disconnect there culturally between yeah if i go watch a musician or if i go to a, a gallery or if i go see a, a play or something like that it's that interaction and with you and the art everything else afterwards if you want to share that with your friends and tell them about it that's great but that in the moment thing 
that's where I think, and certainly for myself as a music fan, that's where I connect and that's where I get that sense of belonging and being part of something that's, you know, if you want to call it spiritual or, or something like that, that's where I get that from. Mm-hmm. And if you're sitting there looking at your phone, you would miss all that. Well, aren't they getting the last laugh now? Because we're we're connecting now through an interface, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's Forget a, everything I just said. <laughs> it's, it's a very good question, right? Like, it's like, what is the genuine article? And like, you know, how... You know, um, you know, certainly that that's, you know, that that is the, the, the question about how we receive, you know, inspiration. Mm-hmm. And um, I think people definitely in terms of trying to capture something and then literally. Right. I mean, there's that sense of literally trying to capture something and, and, and have those moments. You know, what does that speak to? What's going on? What are people missing? I remember going back to Vancouver in 2014 and 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 yelling at someone for <laughs> quite uncharitably yelling during I was doing a reunion show with <laughs> Mark Kleiner Power Trio and one of my old friends was there filming and I said get off your fucking phone. <laughs> <laughs> there was a look of horror kind of on the face yeah. of not only her but several people around and I just kind of realized that maybe that wasn't fair. <laughs> after uh the sister lovers it fell apart or whatever and then you're still in vancouver and you join a band called jungle is that right yeah yeah or did you did you put that band together yourself well yeah it was it was the three original sister lovers guys okay came sister lovers but then it was just me with 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 the our fourth who we had it's got a little comp it's kind of like Actually, that that band Slow had a very similar trajectory to me. Got back together with the original guys, added Stephen Ham, and then um, we did Jungle for a few years. And All right, right. Before before uh, that uh, ended in its own kind of memorable way, and ended up back in Saskatoon. So, so yeah. And you guys did a couple albums. Yeah, we did. So we we had something on uh, a little imprint out of Saskatoon, which which was run by. Uh, Don Kwan, who was, uh, it also included uh, Pork Sword. He put out Pork Sword. Um, they were like a popular Saskatoon group. I remember Pork okay. Sword, yep. And so he put out our first EP. And then we um, did a second album for Scratch Records. And um, the the band, um, we, we basically imploded uh, after. When, when that record was just about to be released. And um, that was where the whole called by God thing kind of was in the media out in Vancouver where people kind of cared about us or whatever. We had a bit of a following. Yeah. Right? So, and then uh, two of the guys from the band, Tim Murphy and I came back to Saskatoon and uh, I went back to school that fall, you know, purportedly to, to go into, you know, the, the ministry following the family, you know, the family business. Um, but, you know, I was still kind of figuring out what I was doing. I was probably more running away at that point. It was, it was good to, to go to school. It was kind of surreal because the fall of 99, I ended up joining the cross country track team and going on all these cross country trips. And I'd just been touring Canada with jungle the previous summer. <laughs> so I was returning to some of these same places, but now with all these like 18 year old kids 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I felt so old because I was almost 30, right? And I was like, the, yeah. but I was like the old, you know, relatively speaking, I mean, to an 18 year old, someone who's 29 is. Oh, God. Yeah. You're ancient. Oh, yeah. You'd, totally yeah, yeah. You'd be a dinosaur. Yeah. 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 Totally. When you told some of your, your friends or, or colleagues or whatever uh, that you're going to go back to Saskatoon and, and become a minister, what was the. What was the general consensus? What did what, what did people say? Well, I, so, nothing could sound crazier. <laughs> yeah, if you want to know in the context of Vancouver, where you know, you know, we certainly um, you know had a good time trying to out crazy each other. And I, I mean, that wasn't I don't think the sole motivator. I think it was a lot of distress and fear, and, and you know, been pursuing this this dream so-called for close to a decade out there and just not dealing with some realities of life. Like, you know, I, I never had kind of a, a backup plan. I never had, I, you know, I never, the, the notion, the notion of doing something besides music seemed to me to be a sellout to the point that when my bandmate Petey was going to go to bartending school, you know, in the early nineties when we were doing sister lovers, when I found out about that, I was just like, I put a, my foot through a guitar. I was like, like literally, <laughs> I was just, oh, really? which is crazy because I mean, people's yeah. just trying to, you know, earn an extra couple bucks an hour. But yeah. the the conceit was if you just did anything but the shittiest job possible, you were not really giving yourself to yeah. the art. <laughs> this is how deranged. <laughs> I, I would say, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty hardcore. That's pretty hardcore. It's, it's, yeah. It's just, it's kind of, crazy thinking in a way right so it's but it's that that inability or that unwillingness and i would say at that point of my life inability to kind of you know compromise or really you know negotiate yeah. negotiate life right which which what what so much that we do in life and we're honest i mean what's interesting musically i mean they are compromises right so so what is negotiable and what isn't and what can i mean i had other opportunities too my aunt bless her had gotten me Basically, she she had a an upper level position, and she got me in through her work the opportunity to interview for a position, which would have paid significantly more than the uh, night cook at, at uh, Deviate in Vancouver. Again, <laughs> fuck that! I went yeah. to interview, and when they offered me the job, I'm like, no, no, I've I've got a band to lead, you know. And it's just like basically what that meant was back in the kitchen, bitch. You got, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got, it must have been weird then, you know, having spent, you know, the better part of maybe close to a decade then being in Vancouver, playing music, being in bands, coming back to Saskatoon, going to school. In my then you're kind of, yeah. Yeah. It must've been really sort of a bit jarring to not have that. Now we don't have that creative control. Now we don't have that sort of self-esteem of okay I'm, I'm doing what i wanted to do so how did was that did that lead into your decision to go back out to vancouver and and go well making music again or you know i think in a lot of ways it was a relief to be going to school because um there was so much of trying to do this dream in this way so-called that i was just like like so much about i'm probably i'm not a polymath but i mean i have like you know being at school and being stimulated in those areas in terms yeah. of like again my upbringing i'm third generation like this is kind of bred in my bone and and it was like to to be uh you know in a school setting was was really quite stimulating it didn't mean that i didn't still love rock and roll i certainly did but 
But in terms of like, when I look at the actual week, how many hours I'm actually devoting to my craft, you know, like a lot of yeah. my time was spent, you know, dishwashing, wine cooking, you know, fighting with my girlfriend, drinking, you know, <laughs> the, the animals yep. hours, three hours of jamming, you know, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Like, it's pretty depressing if you actually do the math. Like, okay. Like, am I really, <laughs> how much am I really devoting to this? You know? And uh, it was so depressing. In fact, that we would never you know, stand back and say, okay, well, we, I mean, we have these discussions at the bar about what our master plan was, but in terms of having a realistic conversation, what are we devoting, you know, having those really kind of important brass tax conversations just would never happen. Right. You came back and I think it was only, you were only back for a, f- fairly short did was it a year or two years or something like that yeah, and then you moved out and you did the well i didn't move out okay so what happened is like you know what the great thing about school is you get these big breaks right so school's done yeah. in the spring and i don't have to be back until the fall and i forget how i had money back then but my parents were also had had saved some money for me to go to school so in terms of actually paying for the classes and at that point i was still living at home so i mean it's kind of a life arrived so you know yeah. i went back to vancouver my 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 co-writer, my good friend of mine, had uh, hit hit it big with the dot com boom. Um, he he offered to bankroll my album, my solo. Album. He said, "Yeah, because I was playing him songs I was yeah, writing, yeah. you know, because uh, I, I I continued to write and I really liked this new batch of songs." And uh, so he said, "You know, you've got a solo album here. I want you to make it. So you know, basically, carte blanche, go make your album." So I did. I, I connected with. Pete Mills, who was in a band called Flash Bastard, I used to play like Fender Rhodes for them, you know, really fantastic and troubled band. And and Pete had just had some sort of a, a, an accident and he, I'm not going to be able to remember precisely what limb he had broken, but I believe it was lower body. Let's talk about self-involved. <laughs> I should be able to remember <laughs> what limb the cast was on. <laughs> anyway but can you still play i don't care what's exactly. broken can you still play work the console um but pete came in and, and pete had vision in terms of how he thought we should make this record and he he suggested kurt Dahl, who had been in uh you know age of electric and limb lifter and and it was a saskatchewan guy and had also, you know, when we were making this record, it just started, he brought a cassette in and I uh, was like, check this out. I just recorded this with Carl Newman. It was the first new pornographers album, right? So. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a very exciting time. So it was great. And then Kurt's an amazing studio, you know, caliber drummer, but also tremendous vocalist. So he sings like a bird. He opens up. His, so he was doing all these harmonies on yeah. the record. So that's when we made the power trio. And it's a, I was so you know when we were arranged this and Randy was I think we were talking about um, about you just in terms of the podcast when we were thinking about doing our podcast and I was saying about you know the album and so I, I loaded it up and it's man it, that is such a good album like it's super catchy it reminds me a lot of Supergrass I don't know if you know a British band called Supergrass yeah because it's got that sort of that bounce to it and there's a rhythm to it and it's cohesive and it you know and it, it just sounds and it's polished and it's produced so well. It's like, man, why, why have I never heard this before? Like, why, why how have I missed this? Almost, you know. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I, I had that feeling. I gotta say, finishing it up, it's like I, you know, I'd being a pop fan, you know, and one, yeah. uh, and my bands were, I think, a little more, you know, you know, maybe more failed, but uh, you know, more, more eclectic. But this was like finally that sense of I can put a, an album that I can just put on at a party and uh, 
Yeah. Except when the big piano ballad kicks in. I, I remember yeah. coming back from uh, Vancouver with the with this whatever burn CD of it. And once it got mastered, I remember before it got mastered, it didn't sound that great. But I mean, Pete did a great job and the mastering just made it really sing. So could put it on. And I remember being at this 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 costume party and you know, Birth to Blue is like a seven-minute piano. You know, so you're playing that. At That's great. Right? That such and, a good song. Yeah, yeah I, I loved it too. And I, I just, this guy came up and did the responsible party thing and turned it off. And I just remember standing. <laughs> Do you value your life? <laughs> so, it was fun. I, I, I love the fact that we got to make that record. And uh, and, and yeah. that record is, did really well too because it didn't sell much at all for Mint. But... It did, uh, you know, in terms of generating, like, it, it was a kind of record that, that people, when they were, like, doing songs, one of songs for shows, you know, and as, as product, and they need more and more. Yeah. That. that was a good go-to record, because it was cheap, you know, you could license those songs, and they, they would kind of sound like, you know, if they wanted AM, sunny pop, or whatever, they could get that. Yeah. And uh, so, I, so, so the label, and, you know, I got, you know, got this revenue stream. Before that's now that's become like pretty much the revenue stream, right? For a while there was a kind of boutique revenue, but now it's kind yeah. of there's no sales, you know. So I want to touch you too, Mark, about the, so the, as I was kind of doing my research on the, some of the projects that you've done, there was this whole Mark. I don't know how to pronounce the last name Zabo or Sebo, the oh, Zabo songbook. Yeah, yeah. What? So what, it sounds like that was a quite a cult niche kind of weird little thing that you just kind of did. can you give me some background on that I'm, yeah I'm well you know every, every niche has a niche <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so so mark zabo is a great uh un, under you know heralded songwriter from uh from the west coast he um you know really really um intelligent lyricist and, and interesting mm -hmm. pretty pretty ambitious music musically um so uh you know i i used to live i was a roommate with mark's drummer and uh you know certainly knew him from the scene and and would listen to his stuff a bit but you know never as seriously as the music deserved and uh so when marcy invited me to take part in it i started listening to it and it was it was a lot of fun so um we worked together on arranging this stuff and um I kind of brought more of a um, of, of a mainstream sensibility, relatively speaking. It's not it's not hard to be the mainstream guy when you're in the room with Mark Zabo. Let me tell you, okay. So, right. <laughs> but anyways, I still have those kind of kind of the, the, McC the McCartney to his Lennon, if you want to bring it back. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we uh, we had fun, you know, kind of woodshedding this, and then I ended up going to Vancouver. And we, that was kind of like the last big thing I worked on for years. And so, but in yeah. kind of like an instrumental producer capacity, co-producer kind of thing. It's interesting too, because, you know, working on, I mean, I'm a huge Steve Earle fan and he's done a couple of different albums where he's covered, you know, he did a full album of Towns Van Zandt's songs and then he did a full album where he did Guy Clark's songs. So what's the difference in sort of the energy and the, what you get out of it between working on an album of your own songs, where they're Mark Kleiner songs, versus working on and interpreting or sort of bringing to the mainstream someone else's songs? Because like there, is there a difference in the way you approach that? Well, I, I, you know, I don't know if we brought it to the mainstream, but again, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that generous assessment. 
They brought it to you. I found it. So, hey, <laughs> which is good. Um, yeah, there is. I think there is definitely. I, I, and I guess for me, um, part of the challenge is is to get to the place where um, you can kind of bring the same sort of sensibility because, um, you know, this this notion, uh, I, I guess what, and it returns to some of the, the previous question, which is about my difficulty uh, in terms of getting my music out to the world, <clears throat> that I would be overly right. invested. Right. So it's like, yeah, people don't like it. I'm going to take on that personally. So therefore, rather than let set myself up for that disappointment, I don't give you the opportunity to tell me what you think of it. So that's kind of a, yeah. a roundabout way of returning to that that thing. So the, the delight with someone else's songs is just having that sense of distance from it because I don't have that level of investment. I have a level of yeah. enjoyment and then approaching it as a craftsperson. And I think what I've started to realize with songwriting and so much of this stuff is I had so much magical thinking before, thinking, well, you know, the song kind of like it alights on you, like from some sort of, you know, spiritual right. intervention. But, you know, a lot of the process in terms of being a, you know, an accomplished writer is just, you know, consciously or subconsciously going through ideas, right? And the old Jerry Seinfeld line, people ask where the good ideas come from. They, say, they come from the same place as bad ideas, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you, you can always tell the lazy, you know, the lazy moment for the songwriter, but I mean, there's that line in there that's kind of like, that's the old thing with Without You that you drive uh, Harry Nilsson nuts, because Harry Nilsson was a pretty uh, hardworking songwriter, amongst other things, yeah. but that line... Um, I can't forget this evening, your face when you were leaving. I guess that's just the way the story goes. And he would just, he would right. just throw them nuts. It's just like, it's just a filler line, right? It's just, <laughs> right. there's a difference between that. and But I guess that's kind of like the movement you need is on your shoulder. It probably has the same purpose, which is just something yep. kind of going through. And then McCartney would have taken that out. But of course, Lennon. If not for Lennon. That's yep. brilliant. That's the best line in there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so who can say but it? It's funny though because, it, like you said though, you, you, that's where, as a songwriter, and Randy and I talk about his music lots too. I, I think when you're so close to it, you, you can't tell. You know, sometimes what's good and what's bad. When someone else comes along and says, "No, no, no, that leave that. That's that's really, really cool," because you have a little bit of attachment, a little bit more objectivity. I think that's very useful, right? When you're collaborating or when you're working with other people, is you need that feedback. If, you know, if I always think about people like Prince and Peter Gabriel, and then some of these guys who are very insular and they do everything themselves you wonder how much better they would be if they would just let other people say yeah maybe maybe just drop that second chorus you know or second that second verse you know well yeah exactly and it's and they are kind of the exception you wonder you know yeah. because uh, i mean the, the, these whole universes that, that prince produced you know and, and i guess it's, it becomes a little bit intimidating to dip in right because he yeah he didn't have the producer kind of saying you know and i think that's a good point it's mm. You know, who, where's the editor to kind of say like, uh, and, and I guess what I've always found most, again, what I was sharing earlier about the, the social aspect of music is, is terms. And I, I, for my own podcast, I'm talking with people right now about an 80s album and how, how albums used to be made in the 80s in LA, which was, I mean, virtually right. everything now is everybody in their own pre-pandemic even. We were way ahead of the curve, right? But everyone's in their own little bubble. And so in terms yeah. of that organic give and take that happens when people come into the room and start you know i mean that's why the you know generally speaking the best music has come out of great bands or, or like and that said you yeah. also have the you know the, the genius quotient i mean i don't know what the collaborative piece was for a beethoven or a, you know but, I, but i'm wow. sure there, there was a piece there it's just so how do we cultivate 
you know, that in, in a way that's healthy for, for art um, and for, you know, for life. I was just interviewing John Leland for my podcast. He's, he's the guy who, uh, he writes for the New York Times now. This might be too much of a tangent, but uh, he, he went and spent a year or two years with people who are 85 up. Because the, the studies show that the, the happiest, most content people tend to be those at the end of their lives, even though their capacities are falling away. And you'd think that these are generally regarded as kind of like just the hell years. But these are yeah. the people by overall who express the most contentment with, with their lives and themselves. And, and so what he ended up determining was it's, it's having a sense, I guess what the Greeks used to say, know thyself. It's like having a sense of who you are, you know, and, uh, you know, and having a sense of comfort with that. Now, having said that, part of what, what is interesting in music is having that sense of who I am challenged a bit, right? That if right. I'm too comfortable in that, there's only so many albums I can make of that. Mind you, the, the, the last albums of Johnny Cash, right, with Rick Rubin were amazing records where he's just sitting good. American Johnny albums, Cash, yeah. right? Yeah. So... I don't know if you guys get an answer in terms of again, like the that rub, that that pull and given pull between, you know, what's established and familiar and what is yet to be yeah. real. So Mark, we talked about we were saying going full circle. So uh you're obviously a monkey's lover, and that's how you and I have met because I I help out with your podcast doing a little bit of editing and stuff. So the love of monkeys was it was it start right in your youth? Is that like when they were on the TV show and that's like, hey, man, these yeah, yeah. guys are great? Yeah, 10 years old, 10 years old, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. 10 years old. So, uh, And so now you're doing this podcast and you're interviewing all these people. Do you Are you going in really deep or how general and broad is the information when you're, uh, I mean, I know because I've heard them all, but, you know, can you talk well, a little it, bit about that? Yeah, it depends on the, it's really interesting because I, I, I think I, I spoke to this a little earlier is that, I mean, it, it's kind of, it's, it's part of me. So it's like, I can just try and I, I, you know, I've for years had a sense of some sense of shame for, for that in the sense of, shouldn't I be aspiring to something a little bit more? <laughs> and I guess like speaking of open questions, <laughs> right? aren't there better things to be doing with my time? But one of the things is um, again, you know, you wonder how much of this, it becomes a way of speaking about, what's important in life, what, what, you know, to me, what I treasure, uh, what is interesting to me. And part, partly, um, maybe some, some of that's refracted through these interviews where, you know, um, we're talking about, uh, I guess, other people's journeys, right. And, and what mm -hmm. they produced and it, and those impacts, uh, you know, I, I get a range of responses and, and I mean, um, but I am interested in, in the person I'm talking to, what's their backstory, not just what they, the, obviously those nuggets of information, like I was at the recording session and, you know, we went to Genghis Cohen across the street for, you know, Chinese yeah. food. What did you order? You know, blah, blah, blah. And something will come up. That will be yeah. kind of, you know, that's, that's obviously prescient right to the subject at hand, but what often, yeah. that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's really gratifying to be able to, to learn about, this this person who's had a had a part in this story, and even an album that's like you know, uh, you know, isn't one of the, the the best albums of all time. It can still be a very interesting album to talk about, you know, and, and to talk about what's what's going on there and and uh, 
how it worked and how it didn't. And well, there's always a story though, right? Like you said, there's always a story behind it. There's always a yeah. story and there's always that, it's like you said, it's, it's, the, it's the human part of music and the human part of art. That's what's interesting and that's what people connect to. So a good or a bad album, you can still talk about it. You can still, well, and there's still something there that you can, you can get some meat off those bones, right? Well, in fact, it, it oftentimes it is um, more meatier bones in terms of the albums that almost, uh, I guess we, a lot of us can relate to failure. <laughs> <laughs> or something. Oh, of course. But, like I don't want to hear more another. I don't want to hear another two hours about Sergeant Pepper. I mean, it. it made, <laughs> right. Like I'm just kind of, and, and so it was my monkey podcast. I take the same approach. 66 to 68, the monkeys' prime years. I know they were meteoric, popular. I've heard so much on those years. So it's like, what yeah. was it like when Peter Tork was like selling, you know, b- balloons? You know, <laughs> the singing balloon salesman in New York City. Obviously, he doesn't. Well, he's dead now, but he, he he wouldn't talk about that. But it's like these, yeah. these interesting kind of yeah. chapters, and that's where finding out that Wayne Kramer from the MC5 for like one hot minute, as he put it, was in the Peter Tork project in the early '80s, owing as much to his oh, problem cool. at the time. Really, <laughs> really. So, hey, where do you where do you get uh, where do you get your like where do you do your research for all this monkeys uh, s- trivia and stuff? I just I just know because I've obviously I edit your podcast that sometimes you're asking questions uh, and you know way more about the subject than the people you're talking to, and and, <laughs> oh, and sometimes they'll they're blowing you they're they're blown away. They're like, how do you, how do you know this? So so yeah. how do you prepare and where do you what where do you get your information? Well, I mean, monkeys is kind of my thing. So it's my, it's in my wheelhouse. So like for decades, I've been reading about these guys from a really young age. I've been ingesting this information. So I'm, I would say I'm pretty much fluent in monkeys, right? So, well, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm not that, I don't want to be, you know, arrogant. <laughs> I'm just going to call it. <laughs> Confidence. You know, well, I, I can say that, you know, like if, if there's one thing I can you know, I'm not saying it's been a, the, the best use of my time, but that's just here we are, right? Like, I, I know my monkeys, right. certainly, and certainly certain areas of the monkeys, right? So when I when I talk with people, all, but it's also, it's kind of like, again, connecting it in the wider fabric. So it's, it's having the connection to, it was really interesting to me to be able to produce an episode, you know, that, that brings MC5 and the monkeys into the same world for just a moment, right? Because they're really... Yeah, because they're, they're freaking... Yeah. polar opposites in totally the cultural polar. landscape you know I mean, yeah yeah no doubt yeah yeah and so it's like to bring up now mind you in terms of like the appeal of that is is speaking of niche i mean i have a niche audience to begin with um i mean people listen to that so i don't know how many people really loved it as much as i i yeah, yeah. i just love that that notion so for the the hardcore monkeys fan it's probably more about keep it about the monkeys and and within the monkeys and the best thing you can have is a monkeys interview. I mean, what one thing I discovered doing my um, when I was writing a book on these guys about ten years ago, Alice Cooper was not the best interview. The better interview was Shep Gordon, Alice Cooper's manager. Right, right, because right. behind the scenes he was sober or he I, less drunk. We'll say during some of the story, <laughs> yeah. but he, he was a, was a better raconteur. He's a better story. You know, so God bless Alice. I finally I spent years trying to get that interview and I got it and I'm grateful for it. But like the juiciest quotes, speaking of meat on the bone, I mean, Chef Gordon was amazing. And he gave me the yeah. story about that famous photo of Mickey Dolan's Harry Nelson, John Lennon, Anne Marie, and Alice Cooper backstage at the Troubadour, told me the whole bo- I had that for my book, and then I wow. didn't finish my book. And then ne- next thing I know, Mike Myers is telling the same story on, <laughs> Let- on David Letterman. <laughs> because Mike Myers Whoa. produced... 
a Shep Gordon. He realized this guy's amazing. So he, he produced yeah. later on in the mid-2010s or so, somewhere around there, he produced a Shep Gordon uh, documentary. And that's just the nature of the thing. But Shep was like, he gave me the same story. And so yeah. <laughs> that's just, I mean, that's just life. If you don't get your shit done, you don't, you know. There's one thing that you, you'd said there, and, and I've, I've had this conversation with people several times. You're saying, you know, there, there are better ways to spend your time. I mean, my wife has asked me a couple of times, why are you doing this podcast? And it's like, I, I think yeah. that how we waste our time, that's what, makes, that's what makes us human, and that's what makes us interesting, yeah, I exactly. think. You know? Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I should, I, it's probably a good thing to take that <laughs> out of my, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, dis, speaking disingenuous. I mean, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. like, who am I like, like really in terms of what, what, what makes your heart sing. Right. And, 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 Absolutely. and you know, this stuff brings me to life. And in some sense, you know, there's something revealing, I guess, about, um, you know, through, through, through failure. And I mean, it isn't it really, I, I had a, someone in, in, in um, seminary say to me about becoming a minister is learning how to disappoint people. You know, that's how it's a good skill to have. Like I said, too, but the Greek, you know, if you go back to going going back to classical Greek, comedy is born of tragedy. That's that's where it comes from. You can't have comedy without tragedy. Real, not real comedy, right? So yeah, and if you want to press people, comedians, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, like the people who, like, you know, I mean, oftentimes. Well, and the, the line I keep coming back to, it's a little tangential, but the similar kind of idea is Oscar Wilde's great line. And I mean, um, that I, I come back to again and again, which is like when bankers get together, they talk about art. When artists get together, they talk about money, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, again, those kind of those different pieces and, and, and the comedy and the tragedy. And, and I, I would find when I was reading uh, tragedies when I was doing my English degree and stuff like that, I would find just so much hilarity with within them and i don't think it was like yeah. Freud. i think it was just you know there may be some of that in there but well actually this is this is a this was a helpful quote i, I recently came across because i was doing wire notes for a um one of one of these monkey side projects that there's, there's a, a label out of, of england and it was talking about um the french proclivity to speak with seriousness about frivolous things and to speak right. with frivolity about serious things right yeah and uh, that was helpful when I when I read that. Oh yeah, because because there is that certain that energy that comes from this. And and when I was denying it, when I was, it's just been so life giving to to go in hard with doing this podcast process, and um, you know, and and push some of my interview subjects and say like, hey, like you know, I, I want to know more. Like, you know, let's uh, let's dig in. Absolutely. So, so uh, speaking of podcasts, uh, when I was doing a little research too, Mark, uh, you're on Nardwar's podcast, right? And he's and we've talked a little bit about that. He's a friend of yours, is that right? So how did you guys how did you guys connect and become friends? Through the monkeys. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, that's great. It was actually it was it was in that's 19, awesome. 1991. So my first year in Vancouver. And I had written an article for the 25th anniversary of the Monkees that was published in Discorder magazine, CITR, the FM UBC radio station, their college paper. Um, and uh, it was like Nardward read it. And then my band, well, Sister Lovers Mach 1, was playing live at CITR. And he was doing his show, or he used to host that show. And so it was like, you got to meet Nardwar. And, uh, you know, like, 
you know, he knew we were coming and I, I knew of him certainly even in those days, he was only four years into doing a show, but he was already pretty iconic. He was bringing in, I don't know if he brought in, I think mud honey at that point, like he was bringing in up the bands oh. and, you know, he was the gruesomes and all these stuff. Like he was garage and punk and, and conspiracy yeah. theory. So kind of the same old, same old, and I was the monkeys and whatever we started, we, you know, <laughs> and so um, we connected that first year. And then when Mickey Dolans came to town to do a game show in Vancouver that fall, um, you know, I talked to him about, it. he's like, okay, well, I'll do the Mickey Dolans interview. So I, you know, he didn't know a lot of monkeys. So I, you know, Nardwar's got like a lot of connections with people who, you know, have a lot of, you know, knowledge in different areas, right? And so that's part of his intrepid research that I've learned from him. Yeah, you know, yeah. so you, you just go, you know, you take the time, you know, you, you give a shit, right? You, it, he just takes the time. He doesn't show it. That's why yeah. people love to talk to him. And that's, I, I, and this isn't my analysis. It's by reading other people say, well, how come Nardwar and the hip hop community? I, I didn't see that one coming, but they're perfect because the people who, who do a lot of um, sampling and, that kind of music are like real, like geek brain, deep research people, which is Nardwar. Like it's in the same wheelhouse, right? So that's yeah. that was that unexpected, you know, third or whatever it is. I mean, it's like that's how millions of people yeah. know Nardwar. But we'd already watched him cycle through all these different, you know, um, chapters, <laughs> and health catastrophes. And, I mean, he'd been you know, Ozzy Osbourne already dead and reborn. And, then all of a sudden he's, he explodes, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, like we've I've been on his show numerous times. He's been very generous in terms of supporting my both my music, but also in terms of us, you know, partnering on various projects. And so I I was the one who said to him, "Hair metal is the true punk rock." In '92, <laughs> I said, "Forget about Green Day and Offspring and." whatever yeah. these all punk you want the real punk it's Janie lane and warrant you know playing in a club when they were playing in arena three years <laughs> yeah. so that's when we started and the first interview we got was slick toxic we co-interviewed their guitar player when they were doing their do you remember slick toxic i i do yeah yeah okay. uh, I don't. Uh, kevin probably wouldn't they were uh no they, the they just rose in canada yeah okay yeah <laughs> Yeah. They, they had one kind of big album doing the nasty and it had gone gold okay. i think it had maybe eighty thousand canadian it, it hadn't broken the states but the they got really drunk especially their bass player at the juno party and he took the emi limousine and <laughs> trashed it like he went into all these parked cars and basically oh, all any, any sort of profit from that canadian you know, gold plus records <laughs> right. was wiped out and they were dropped ingloriously from the label. And at the same time, wow. Seattle hit. So, you know, talk about, you know, navigating the blows. So they ended up putting out a second album on an independent label out of Toronto. It may have been a vanity imprint, I don't remember, but it had songs like, uh, I, I, I want a gun to blow my manager away and all this stuff. <laughs> right. So, it was very subtle. Yeah, very subtle. And, uh, I remember, oh, and actually, I, yeah, it's later than I thought because we didn't talk to him until after Kurt Cobain had died. And I remember him saying, man, I, I just don't get it. People would die for that kind of success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God bless them. Being in, being in Vancouver at that, just, I mean, rewinding just a little bit though, but because, yeah, when 
you know, when Nirvana hit and Soundgarden and, and Alice in Chains and all those bands, you were, you would have been playing stuff that was very, very different, but coming through at kind of the same time. Was there sort of, did you guys in Vancouver, were you ever looking down south thinking, Jesus, how, how, how do we get these? What, how do we get that kind of notification? How do we get notice like that? How do, how do we miss that sound? Well, I mean, we didn't have to look that far south because it was also percolating within Vancouver, right? It was, you know, okay. there was, it, it was kind of like, certainly Seattle's where it blew up, but, you know, Bellingham, yeah. Washington, and that whole kind of punk CITR again, cooler than thou kind of scene. We were what? kind of on the fence there, you know, like again, Nardwar loved us, but generally people were really um, leery of us. And, you know, yeah. our influences were not the same. And so, but yet, again, how much of that is, is legitimate and how much of that is being 21 years old and trying to establish an identity? So you make, yeah. you make more about the differences because that's part of the whole, I guess, thing about being 21, or at least we did. We kind yeah. of embraced the, the, I think we embraced being underdogs and, and being... Yeah, you know, whatever black sheep, you know, amongst a flock of black sheep, right? So yeah. Um, yeah. that that became and that became becomes very self limiting. I mean, there is something that's very gratifying about that. Again, it's it's the uh, unwillingness or inability to share beyond one's own navel, right? Well, I mean, authenticity comes at a price, right? That's it's, kind well, of, it's, yeah, yeah. It's like where is that? Where's that piece? I remember reading yeah. a review of Lowest of the Low. And uh, the Alexander Vardy, I still remember this. Georgia Strait was the big weekly uh, music play. He said they came off as punks wanting to be liked. In other words, <laughs> in other words, pathetic. That's how we ended yeah. up. Like that was like that was like oh man, like that was like yep. a, a memorable jab. And I didn't like. I would come back low, so low. And then again, speaking of arrogance, it was one of those bands that I just fucking hate. And, and they they were fine. Like they were a good song, the Sky Diggers. But if you were in Van, East Vancouver, you were given basically there was like an unwritten rule that you there are certain bands you hated, right? Yeah, right. And those. <laughs> and so I'd come back and we go to Amigos, Los Low, and be and I watch my and I'd be getting drunk and I watch my friends go up to dance like this and I'd be just like you fucking lemmings. You know, like this, this is just, you know, like, and I, I, I would let my disdain be known by the look on my face. You know, yeah. so I just be there enjoying myself. What I began on the evening is letting everybody know I was way above. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, that yeah, was yeah. I certainly got my eight dollars worth by being able to project. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dollars well to display yeah. to display my hatred of you. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> oh. uh, that's good. So, one thing I wanted to talk to you too, Mark, about, and we're going to jump back forward again. We kind of bounce around a little bit, but now that you're the role that you have now in the community as a as a pastor, I wanted to ask you about, and I've got an, another friend of mine who's my wife's cousin's husband is a Pentecostal minister, and I've talked to him about this. There's a lot of performance in what you do day-to-day in your roles. I mean, there's obviously this is the human connection and helping people, but when you're actually giving a sermon or you're, you know, doing that on a, on a, on a Saturday or Sunday, whatever it is, there's a lot of performance there. So I was wondering what you sort of took from music and being on stage and playing to being a minister. How did, how did that translate? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, two things immediately come to mind. I recently heard, I, I won't be able to document it or, or say, cite, cite it properly, but a, a study in terms of the body language and sort of like the, the, the movements one does in terms of leading, yep. uh, they're comparing those leading a worship service to a stadium rock show. 
And, yeah. um, you know, here, here's where the, the bad late night humor go, except for biting the heads off of live chickens, right? So we don't, <laughs> that's your bad chicken. I don't joke, right? But the, the fact of the matter is they're virtually identical, which is really interesting. Yeah. And so, um, you know, supposedly rebelling by going into rock and roll. Well, rock and roll comes out of gospel and, and you know, Jerry Lee Lewis. Of course. So, but but personally, the the first time I ever got up into a pulpit to preach, and I was like, you know, um, you know, still in school, and and it was a um, Presbyterian church and, and in Saskatoon, and it was one of these like, you know, let the student minister take the service, and I remember just getting into that pulpit and having that sense that um, I don't give a sh like I've done my prep right, yeah. And, However, this goes over, I don't give a shit. In terms of the response, it was very liberating. Yeah. It was very liberating. And I realized if you've been in bars <laughs> playing your <laughs> original music <laughs> for audiences, you're going to listen to this. And, I'm, and if you get used to enduring that kind of like, not hostility so much as, or, or just people who just don't give a shit, right? Apathy. And are still able to go up there. I realized like, man, I would have thought, well, I wouldn't have thought that, that all those years out there, I mean, what a, what a gift doing it and following it out. Like, and, and that's really what music, you know, is, is to be vessels, right. Is to let it flow yeah. through. That doesn't mean there's not craft and preparation, you know, um, you know, there's, there's lots of stories of preachers saying, I'm just going to let the inspiration come when they go up on, you know, you go up to the pulpit and it's like Psalm 94 and you got nothing, right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, it's kind of like, again, well, improv music. I mean, you know, like there, there's a whole lot that goes, or improv comedy, right? That you're not really just walking off the street and going up on stage. And, no, of course not. And, and if you are, it shows, right? Well, exactly. You can exactly. tell the people, yeah. You may get lucky, you know what I mean? Once or twice. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are those moments that kind of like defy all these rulemaking with it. But they are the exceptions. Again, the, the princes yep. are generally the exceptions to the. And we've kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. That music and spirituality, to me, are they're just inextricable. Like I, I get the same high from listening to certain pieces of music that I, am, I imagine that you know believers get from that experience. So how how important do you think music is to people spiritually? Oh, huge. I mean, and in terms of like. You know, in terms of how I've been able to be effective, I think in my in the role I do now, there's been so much of that has come through being able to to offer music as one of the you know really important. You know, it's it's a connector, right? And yeah. I, spirituality for me is is connection. You know what I mean? Whether it's connection to another yeah. human being or to the, to the planet or to your pet or to God, you know, like those those relationships of connection. Is, is what I think we're talking about with, when we talk about spirituality, right? So, um, and, do, and, do, do, I, and I find that like, the, the thing that we're going through right now with this whole, with the pandemic, I think people are, and, and I hope that this continues once it's all over, but I think people are starting to realize that again. They're, they're starting to remember that it's not all about buying a new car and having this job and doing this. It's about what we miss now. We miss giving someone a hug, something as simple as giving your mother-in-law a hug. Or going sharing a pint with someone, or going—you know what I mean? Like that connection. Now that it's been taken away, I think it's really come into the forefront of people's thinking that, oh shit, that's what it's actually all about. We we can go in a myriad of directions, and and so the the point is, 
in terms of, I mean, we'll never know that until after that sense of consensus, where did we go? I, I, I guess yeah. the hope is that we can encourage each other to choose to go in the direction that continues to, um, you know, of, of encouragement, of, 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 of a life that's truly more, you know, we can thrive, right? And how do yeah. we thrive, right? It's, uh, it isn't by buying all that crap, but it isn't by like, you know, I mean, I, I walked on a lot of people to pursue my dream, you know, like I neglected yeah. a lot of people you know, who were right there, you know, in terms of like, when I look back on what made those music moments or those moments important and memorable, it, it wasn't the, I would say record sales or lack of record sales, right? Yeah. It was, it was the human connection. And almost by and large, that was in terms of my priorities, that was, you know, down the list. Yeah. yeah. And yet that's, that's what that's yeah. what endures and that's what's that's what's valuable right like that's what's actually you know that's what makes a life <laughs> you know but, and that, yeah, that, that's yeah, a great sure. point though because that's that's where we tend to be hard on ourselves and you, I mean, you look back and you think oh, i was just i was a shitty kid and i did all this this stuff but as long as i think as long as you get there eventually and as long as you haven't done too much damage in the interim period, but as long as you get there eventually you have that self-awareness to think okay well yeah no that stuff wasn't important what i'm doing now is that I mean, there, like you said, there's not really a goal at the end. It's the journey. But I, I think as long as you're moving forward and you are paying attention to what's going on and especially what's going on with yourself, then hopefully you can get to a place where eventually you can say, "Well, yeah, I'm actually, I'm okay now. I'm cool. I'm happy with where things well, are at." You know. Well, it, and, and we're we're always in different. Like I mean, I I wasn't doing this at, at 20. Like we're like there wasn't a lot to reflect on. I mean, there was whatever, <laughs> right? It's a different stage in life. You know, now I'm a I'm, I'm a father, right? So I think in terms of like what's really important. To, to me in terms of like uh you know ra raising these these kids i mean when i was doing my music you know i didn't have um you know and i wasn't i wasn't you know my 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 partners you know there's a couple people i was with we're, we're not getting the best of what i got you know so yeah so yeah different priorities and and also you know yeah so we bring we bring different things to the you know, at different yeah. stages in our lives, right? Mark, so yeah, do, are you? Is there another? Is there another album in in Mark Kleiner? Or is it? You know, are you gonna make ever gonna record another make, album? Make, make me an offer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I know a guy who has a recording studio, and he's very good. <laughs> exactly. oh, um, you know, I yeah, I'm writing all the time. I'm writing lots of covid songs and i've been you know not just uh i, I wrote a balcony anthem which i really like uh because i was like there's not a lot of balcony songs but just i mean s celebrate being on our balcony thing obviously so anyways so I, I i you know actually i found this this time very creatively quite quite generative um i you know i, I can i'd love to make more more music i, I think we're you know i i got i came of age and in a, in a time of you know, I still think I think in terms of um, mediums that are no longer relevant, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't. I don't mean that the world doesn't mean. It's just it's so interesting, you know. As as far as like how you how do you share? Because I still I still you know work on and, and write songs that I, I really like and would like to find a way to kind of get out there. But I'm also aware of the, the fact that putting a whole bunch of energy into making a 12 song album and then dropping it and uh, Kind of hoping for you know 
the best or whatever. It just feels like the, the medium, you know, if I was more conversant in TikTok, I guess it would be. Yeah. But it's learning how to, you know, I, I just feel like I, I speak a language. It's like, like being, speaking of at least my, my monkey fluency, I, I've got a little, you know, corner of the, the playground where I can share that. But, you know, yeah. my, my Esperanto <laughs> that I speak as a songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> awesome uh so well said we're we're so we, we had a bit of a we had a, an almost heavy finish and then we kind of i think we brought a bit of levity back into the conversation so we like to finish with um we have so we have 10 quick fire questions so they're quick fire in the sense that they're pretty pointed you can yep. go as long or as short as you want so number one rolling stones or the beatles wings Ooh, there we go. <laughs> that answer, yeah. Nice. <laughs> I'm still chalking that in the Paul McCartney column, so it still goes with this. <laughs> okay. Um, what's the favorite thing in your closet right now? Oh, I own the shirt that Peter Tork wore in the Monkey's movie head, the Nader jacket. Oh, Holy shit. Cool. Wow. <laughs> wow. So that's been the same um, after for the last uh, 32 years, I guess. <laughs> and, that, right and just so you know that's better than anyone else's answer <laughs> it is yeah you yeah you win you're, you're winning, winning. Yeah. <laughs> um, what what song do you wish that you had written mm, happy birthday ah okay <laughs> nice. it's sung more often than anything else i suppose yeah what song do you wish you hadn't written oh wow it's like he, those kind of songs are like, well, I'm, I'm so tired of hearing on the radio. I don't really have any songs like that. You know, the, the ones I wish I hadn't written, I've kind of forgotten about, I guess. So um, too many to mention. Too many. <laughs> All the ones that didn't make the cut, yeah. Uh, so number five, sandals or flip-flops? Um, what's Flip-flops are, how, what's the difference? Sandals are kind they of strapped on. Right. Yeah, they kind of have a. There, you could run in sandals. You can't really run in flip flops. I tend to wear more flip flops, but I probably I would prefer sandals. If I okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is the best piece of advice you've ever received from a musician? Mm, I was just thinking of this the other day. Billy Cowsell. Um, I approached him backstage at the Starfish Room. I was trying to get his son, twelve years old at the time, to play on my Dwight Twilley tribute album. Because uh, Dwight Twilley was with Susan Cowsill, Billy's sister, romantically and professionally for a number of years. And so Billy looks at me and goes, my sister's ex. <laughs> anyway, I didn't do the trivia. Um, I'll try and keep this short. But he, he um, God bless him. He looked at me straight in the eye. He said, just do not stop. Keep going. Your time will come. I promise you. I mean, it's just. The fact of the matter is the person who is saying it, I mean, one of the greatest singers. And I mean, you know, and, and I guess that's what we're talking about. Like, just, just keep, keep going. You know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a cliche yeah, for sure, but, but it, it came from Billy Cowsell. And I thought, what a gift. Speaking of mentorship, I, I think I really was hungry for some mentorship during those years. And yeah. uh, Billy, Billy came through with, I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. I really felt blessed by that exchange with him that night. So, Awesome. Cool. Um, what is your favorite thing to drink right now? Um, I used to like drinking kombucha, but then I found out it's got booze in it, and I can't drink booze anymore. So, 
Yeah. Um, that was, uh, I had to cut that out. Um, you know, I've, I've let myself drink, uh, drink black coffee again, some, so it's a very simple answer. I, yeah. Okay. Who is the best artist or band that you've seen live? Well, I, I'm going to say the monkeys because they're, you know, I, I would say there was one time I saw them. I, I, and I haven't seen them as many times as one might think, but I saw them in 1989 at Ontario place when they had that stage that revolves and it was a free show. You pay to go into the fair. And they did three shows that uh, weekend. And it was their last show. Their second show, you could tell. I mean, they, they, they could not stand each other. They were fighting the whole right. tour. And the second show, it was very obvious. It's like, you fucking, you know, like Davy Jones, you know, like, has taken on Peter Clark or whatever. Like, you, you're just basically watching a band that fucking hates each other. doesn't want to be on TV. It wants to get the show over with and pay me in cash and get me back to the bus. Right? That was the vibe. Right. Third show, something, I mean, something happened. Um, they connected with each other in a professional sense. They were impact, like they just elevated and the crowd, we were all together with that. It was, it was yeah. impeccable entertainment, great pop song craft. And especially with that sucker punch of the previous show, completely unexpected. So I would say August, 1989, seeing the monkeys just absolutely kill it. Describe your teenage self in three words. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fucking horrible question <laughs> it really oh, is uh... <laughs> you ask a horrible question you're gonna get a horrible answer every mother's, every mother's nightmare every mother's nightmare <laughs> every mother's <laughs> love it <laughs> oh man okay so our final uh, final official question then we got one more after but who would you most like to perform with given the opportunity and that could be anyone living or dead well i got to I, I got to actually perform with peter case when i came out of retirement about nine years ago and that was oh, amazing wow. and that was the my gratitude for that increased exponentially as i can i started to what i was a plimsolls fan when i played with him but then i discovered his solo crap catalog in the years since and so my <laughs> my gratitude for that actual experiences has just increased over time so yeah i so so i think of i think of that and it was uh but as far as uh, someone who i i didn't play with or haven't played with to this point in time who would that be and i got to play with enough's enough gosh and party with them on their bus remember that <laughs> they really, i do yeah this might be okay fucking incredible so I, yeah. I guess I've already lived the dream. So who would I add to that? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Th those have been a couple of like amazing experiences. So I'm just kind of thinking you hope to play with somebody and then, um, okay, well, how about Ravine? I'd like to open for Ravine. There you go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there <you> go. <laughs> because uh, that way it's kind of like neutral like not a lot of expectations and maybe he'll be cool right. yeah. the story but if he if he's shitty and stuff not a lot you know not a lot of venture not a lot of game so that's, yeah. that's kind of a 49 year old's uh very guarded answer to that question very, like very say, pragmatic they thought run grin but you know like you know like, yeah <laughs> Okay, uh, thanks for listening, music lovers. Uh, we'll, as always, include links in the episode notes to some of Mark's music. 
as well as some of the songs and bands that we talked about today, perhaps. We'll also include a link to Mark's podcast, so you can find that and check it out. Um, if you're a Monkeys fan, obviously that will be of significant importance and interest to you. Um, don't forget to check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, we are at H-F-I-A-M podcast. We post regularly to keep you enlightened and entertained. Uh, and to lead us out, we will leave Mark with the last word. And this is Birth to Bloom. Some girls leave you angry Some girls leave you ending Begin to make it up To bend these cuts in your life Slow down, kick back, take your shoes off You made the way that got you lost If you'd ever had to change your mind You'd fade out on this world Talk about it all the time But I don't need to remind you Once you were paddling upstream At the mercy of these dead Do we It's a touch and hide